This is a lecture given by Nicholas Barker at the School of Library Service, Thursday, the 20th of November, 1980. Well, as a confirmed hand printer, I realize that my entire future lies in the hands of the man who so admirably set up the poster. Uh, I'm very grateful to him and uh, uh, propose to take my text uh, according to the printed text, which is more than most preachers do. As a matter of fact, uh, I now stray instantly. Um, somebody remind me of Stephen Leacock this afternoon. And a dim memory of a childhood reading of it may have been literary lapses or possibly sunshine sketches of a little town, I forget which, but it concerned the family sitting down in the 21st century to Christmas dinner. You, is this story all fearfully familiar? Uh, and there they are, grandpa, grandma, son, daughter, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, son's children, daughter's children, in fact, daughter's children and newborn baby, all together, 14 people sitting down to Christmas dinner. Christmas dinner, in accordance with the standards of hygiene by now established, has been encapsulated, turkey, plum pudding, the lot, in, for 14 people into a small pill and before Grandpa bends his attention to carving the pill, which is sitting on the poker chip, a rather nice, uh, nice uh, touch, um, he bends his head, and uh, so does the rest of the family. Uh, for what I understand from looking at the New York Times this morning, is no longer called grace, but invocation. <laughs> and... As their heads are reverently bent, the baby seizes the Christmas lunch for 14, swallows it, and bursts. <laughs> so if you'll take that as the text, we'll get on with the exposition. <clears throat> Some years ago, I received a letter from a rather improbable address in Ireland describing a new invention called the Linear Book, which was to revolutionise the whole business of printing and reading. The text was rather difficult to follow, but a photograph enclosed with the letter made all clear. It showed two cylinders or spools looking suspiciously like benzedrine inhalers, with, stretched between them, a strip of paper on which was lightly sketched in the outline of a pair of rectangular pages. This was the invention, a rolled book. Think, <laughs> think, of the economies, the letter said. Paper is made in rolls. Pa it is printed in rolls and can now be read in rolls. 
Gone are the time and money-wasting procedures of imposing printing plates, folding sheets into pages, and all that cumbrous business of binding. Well, I hope I can recognize a millennium when I see one, as well as the next man. Indeed, counting carefully, I made it all but 2,000 years since the Codex, uh, the book as we know it, began to supersede the papyrus or parchment roll, the form in which the earliest surviving non-inscriptional texts have come down to us. Plus a change, I thought to myself, and resisted the temptations held out to me in the offer of the patents in this device for a very reasonable figure. <laughs> we know too little about the development of the role, except that in the East Mediterranean world, it was influenced, if not controlled, by the cultivation and manufacture of papyrus. The papyrus reed will not grow everywhere. It did grow in Egypt, and Egypt was the centre for its manufacture and export. It looks like paper, but it is not made by pounding up vegetable fibres into pulp, but by bonding them in strips, crosswise. This gives it amazing durability, especially in the sands of Egypt. It was made in rectangular panels of varying size, but about 8 to 10 inches square, which were glued together end-to-end -to, -end to make a row. On each panel was a smaller rectangular panel containing the text. By ancient tradition, the Egyptians once tried to prevent the export of papyrus, and this led to the development of parchment at Pergamum in Asia Minor, which gave it its name. Parchment was made of animal skins, which were in regular use further east, although they were not so convenient to write on. Some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may remember, are on leather. Not a fragment of parchment exists that predates the Christian era. There may or may not be some significance in that fact. The unique possession of an historic text distinguished Christianity from other creeds. The increased use of parchment may possibly have sprung from the need to give that text a better chance of permanence. But there may have been other reasons. The gradual breakup of the Roman Empire may have led to the use of the more durable material as a means of protection against an uncertain future. The question of script has to be considered too. The outlines of Greek and Roman letters grew from the same Semitic source. Originally engraved, the shapes of letters changed as they came to be written. The movements of the pen on the fibrous surface of papyrus were limited by a downward left-to-right motion which gave the letters a stress, a contrast of thick and thin strokes, which in turn communicated itself to the stone-engraved letter. I say communicated itself, but there is, if the Museo Nazionale at Palermo had not lost it, an inscription which contains, uh, still scribbled in paint on the outside, the uh, writer's instructions to the engraver.
which is, as far as I know, the only source for that assumption, that the uh, shapes of engraved letters are determined by the pre-existence of a written letter. The alternating influence of the different media in which letters are formed is a constant factor in determining their shape. The surviving fragments show that every variety of script was used on papyrus, from a fine formal capital, the hand of the Hawara Homer, for example, to the rapid abbreviated cursive of routine documents with, of course, the latter predominating. With the change to a less expendable and scarcer kind of material, script tended towards formality. Even scripts of wholly informal origin were canonized in the form of rustic capitals and uncial. Allowance must be made for the haphazard survival of trivial documents, all sorts of things, invoices, waybills, were made into mummies in Egypt. But the trend is unmistakable both in the Latin West and the Greek East. The invention of the Codex with its choirs of folded double sheets is so fundamental that it is hard to imagine any progress, any development in it. But a prototype of sorts existed in the wooden framed wax tablets used in Rome for impermanent writing as accounts or exercise books. These were bound together as leaves with leather thongs and thus looked like books. The codex was an improvement on this since many more parchment sheets could be fitted into the same space as a few tablets. When it was protected with a binding, a pair of boards connected integrally with the parchment choirs, the codex became an artifact of notable durability, capable of some resistance to the two great enemies of books, fire and damp. The development of the binding may have been an Egyptian invention too. The earliest surviving fragments suggest that the technique was developed by the early Christian sects, Gnostic or Copt, to protect scriptural codices. Altogether, one can see, with hindsight, three reasons for the supersession of the role by the Codex. In the first place, the Codex was more durable. Papyrus itself was a long-lasting material, but constant rolling and unrolling broke it up. The codex was made of a much better lasting material, and its construction was sounder. It did not, like the roll, lose its three-dimensional quality in use, an important factor, this, in more ways than one. Secondly, the Codex was a better guarantee against forgery. Since a roll consisted of slips of papyrus or leather stuck or sewn together, it was easy to remove one slip or to add another. But the Codex consisted of so many leaves stitched in choirs and sewn together in a binding. A leaf could be cut out or added, but it would show 
This factor was of increasing importance as more and more copies were made of scripture and the legal code, for both of which a canon, a text of authentic uniformity, was required. The same considerations led to such improvements as the numbering of pages and the provision of a list of contents related to them. Furthermore, you could use both sides of the sheet, whereas a roll could only be rolled one way and used on one side. All this adds up to the third and final advantage of the codex. It was not only handier, more compact and capacious, but it was far easier to consult. <clears throat> Anyone who's ever used a microfilm viewer will instantly recognize the advantages of the codex over the roll here. Nothing is more wearisome when you are reading a book on microfilm than that constant need to refer back which sends you winding back a yard. No, too far. Back a bit. Back again. There it is. Now, where was I when I started? Uh, it's a tiresome business. All that was abolished by the Codex. It is small wonder that people habitually read aloud even to themselves, from a roll. It was first, we must remember, a method of recording facts which had hitherto been preserved by oral tradition by people who got them by heart and could recite them. The philosopher Heraclitus was, uh, by legend again, one of the first to record his work in writing and to deposit it in a temple, the nearest thing, I suppose, to a library then existing, where it was consulted, and he says so, by Aristotle in the 4th century. So, the whole act of reading silently to yourself came with the Codex. It is difficult to imagine what a revolution this was. Perhaps the most direct comparison would be the effect of the computer on calculation. But reading silently was a far more radical revolution because the human mind is far subtler than the computer. The computer just counts fast. Reading a codex did not just increase people's reading quantitatively by speeding it up, it changed it qualitatively too by allowing them to consult the text at any point with equal speed. I've rather laboured the revolutionary aspects of the supersession of the role by the Codex because there are a number of elements here which recur over and over again in the history of the book. The association of disposable materials with second-rate or informal lettering, the need for stability and durability both in the text and the materials of which it is constructed, above all, the possibility of expanding the area in which the mind is free. Finally, this revolution, like its successors, had one important other effect. As the Codex superseded the role, works had to be converted to the new process if they were to survive. Little read, obsolete, or simply rare works would not be transferred and in time 
the rolls on which they were written would perish. The process of conversion was a bottleneck through which texts had to pass in order to survive. This bottleneck effect is another recurrent feature in the history of the book. With the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages began. It is not fashionable, hardly indeed respectable, to talk about the Dark Ages. They were not, one is constantly reminded, all that dark. At every stage between the disappearance of the classical past and its literature to its recovery in the Renaissance, there were those, the patriarch Photius, the wandering Irish scholars, preservers from Lupus of Ferrier to Petrarch to keep the flame alight. But it is important to remember that they did not all see it with our eyes. To each, it meant something different. It is, however, fascinating to observe certain constant features in the landscape. As books became rarer and more precious, there was a regular tendency to upgrade their script and appearance. Nothing shows this more forcibly than one of the great gospel books, the Lindisfarne Gospels, for example, or one of the great Carolingian purple codices, where their elaborately decorated pages and equally elaborate hierarchy of scripts. A book became a cult, almost a magical object. To convey its status to the illiterate, it had to catch the eye and was therefore decorated. Even a humble text would have ornamental initials, something never used even in the most luxurious of classical manuscripts. We have seen this relic of the Dark Ages disappear within the last decade with the final abolition of the big drop initial at the beginning of chapters. The Codex thus persisted with little change for many centuries. Only one major element changed in its makeup, a change which had little effect immediately on the rest of its structure. Paper began to be used for books. Now, paper was a Chinese invention. The Arabs acquired it in the 8th century, 751 AD uh, is what they always say, uh, exactly a century after they had conquered Egypt and cut off the old Roman Empire from its traditional source of papyrus. Whether by neglect or accident of nature, the great papyrus plantations of the Nile Delta seem to have dwindled very sharply immediately after the Arab invasion. So, paper mills quickly sprang up in the Arab world from the Levant to Spain. More slowly, it was adopted in Greek Byzantium and still more slowly spread to the west via the Normans in Sicily. The first paper was made in Italy at the end of the 13th century. Gradually, it began to take the place of vellum, more expensive and harder to prepare as the common material for documents and then books. It is interesting to reflect that this is the only example of cross-fertilization between the East and West in the physical transmission of written words. 
While other scripts had the same beginnings in incised forms, those in the Far East developed more characters and a more fluent, even cursive way of depicting them, more vivid because less stylized methods of recording speech. It is interesting to speculate what part the cheapness of writing materials had in this, in China and Japan. Not only paper, but printing from movable types were invented there long before the West reached the same level of technology. It is possible that this fertility was, in a sense, counterproductive. Lacking the economic pressure to simplify, written Chinese is now an immensely complicated problem to mechanize. The one common factor that links the classical scroll with, say, a 15th century manuscript codex is that every one of them is unique, each one written out by hand, copied from another. Writing out by hand was a slow process, and partly because of that, and partly because materials were dear, a good deal of ingenuity went into speeding up the process, alleviating the tedious task, and saving vellum. It is fascinating to watch the progress of the text of the great glossed codices of scripture or the law, in which a main text is accompanied by several separate commentaries or sets of notes, each of varying length, but usually longer than the text, all set out in three or four columns. At first they are written out in parallel, the page dictated by the length of its longest component, with much unused white space on the page. Then the longer element is allowed to spill over into the space allotted for the shorter, but kept distinct from it by various methods. More text is squeezed onto the page by these methods until finally it is full. A whole battery of other artifices, abbreviations, contractions, hyphens, assist the task of making a full rectangular page. Other devices, the breaking words only at logical points, avoiding the repetition of the same word at the end of successive lines, picking out paragraphs and chapter openings, show that the scribe had not only himself to please, but the reader, and, perhaps more important, the next copyist who might use his text as well. This last point took on a new importance when in the 13th century, in the universities that were springing up all over Europe, the demand grew for uniform set texts. The Pisa system, a form of simple mass production, started in Italy, but quickly spread to Paris and even Oxford. Each section or choir of the approved text could be lent or hired to a scribe who would copy it out, following the original as far as possible line for line, so that when he collected the next section, it would fit on conveniently where the last left off. Theoretically, the choirs of different copyists should have been quite interchangeable, but the process does not seem to have been quite as standardized as that. 
I remember that Graham Pollard and I once journeyed to Worcester together to examine a manuscript which Graham believed to contain not merely the original of, from which a Picia was copied, but a Picia uh, copy of it as well. And he was quite right. The uh, manuscript contained 14 gatherings when it should have contained 13, and the first two gatherings were duplicated. They began with the self-same words, and lines one and two and three and four, and as far as I remember, five and six were exactly the same. Unfortunately, when you got to the end of the gathering, scribe number one had got about five lines out of sync with scribe number two, but you can't have everything. Um, the PCA system died out in the 14th century. The diminution of the population of Europe due to the Black Death may have reduced demand. Certainly, more efficient forms of book distribution made locally produced copies less necessary. The 15th century was to bring new prosperity and a great expansion in population and human mobility, which brought out the great new innovation in the book. I sometimes think that printing would have had to have been invented even if there had been no Gutenberg. So great was the pressure brought about by this expansion of population and of human knowledge. That's one of those great reverse speculations which work either way. In fact, I have this much evidence on my side that there was besides the inventor, that others besides the inventor had the same idea. As uh, one Prokop Waldvogel, a goldsmith from Prague, was at work in Avignon in the mid-1440s on what was uh, evidently a very similar scheme, although absolutely no trace, physical trace, of his work survives. A good subject for a historical novel. The expansion of trade, the improvement in shipping that made Columbus's journey possible, the improvements in metallurgy brought about by the discovery of new metals in South Germany, not far from Gutenberg's Mainz, and finally the threat of a Turkish invasion. All this created a new demand for the written word which far exceeded the means to supply it. We should all be grateful to the Turks. If they had not sacked Constantinople in 1453, successive popes would not have felt obliged to launch crusades by offering indulgences to those who contributed to them, and without this massive demand for identical copies of the same document, the first printers would have lacked their best customers. And if you doubt that, remember that the earliest dated examples, both of Gutenberg's work and of Caxton's in England, were indulgences in aid of crusades against the Turks. It is characteristic now of the whole process of invention that as much or more time is spent simulating extant procedures by new means as in devising wholly new procedures. The press itself was no problem. It was already a machine well tried in other trades. Indeed, its three-dimensional impression gave a new crispness to printed words. It was the simulation of writing that was so difficult. Gutenberg took at least 20 years developing his invention to the point where he or the market 
were satisfied that it provided an adequate substitute for written letters. I do so wish that some of the manufacturers of uh, film setters had adopted the same punctilious attitude. If Gutenberg or his customers had been satisfied with the letters which 400 years later the first typewriter manufacturers found acceptable, there would have been far fewer letters to cut. The earliest compositors, one must remember, had a positively Chinese array of characters to deploy, what with multiple letters, con con contractions, and so on. Furthermore, the adjustable type mold would have been unnecessary. This instrument, the crucial part of Gutenberg's invention, was a sort of metal box with adjustable sides so that letters of different widths from a thin I to a thick M could be cast in it. But Gutenberg and his partners had too much to risk. Cautious, they chose letters that had lasted well already to copy in type the formal, upright, Gothic, scriptural letter for the types of the 42 and 36-line Bibles and the two Psalters, and an equally formal cursive for the indulgences. And what Harry Carter has called this backward look is common to the development of the book as a whole, not just to typography in particular. Now, one unexpected result of this was that it froze letter forms. Before the invention, every letter in every copy of every book was willy-nilly different. Experiment and change were almost involuntary. Now, for 50 years, letters were abruptly stabilized, and with them, the age-old scribal conventions from the rectangular text panel now become a straitjacket since it was made up of uniformly rectangular pieces of type, initial letters, hyphenation rules, the lot. A rather similar process overtook the texts that were printed. The early printers, or those who financed them, tended to play safe and chose old texts, which had lasted well, rather than new works as yet unproven. There were exceptions. But generally speaking, the bottleneck effect that we noticed with the transfer from roll to codex took place again. Many medieval texts failed to make the grade. Most of them have disappeared. Some apply the vast new demand for raw material. Where before a scribe needed paper for one book at a time, the press needed paper for 200 or a thousand or even three thousand books before one copy could be sold. The change of gear was big, even by the new entrepreneurial standards of the 15th century. And if you doubt that, remember that the Venetian ambassador who came to Milan in 1427 to raise an army to fight against Mantua was equipped with the armor for 1,000 cavalrymen and 4,000 footmen in 10 days flat, which must have been a staggering achievement in non-stock-holding, artisan-based labor days. Remember 
that Caxton's first contact with printing before he set up himself was to commission an edition of the old, 14th century old, English Encyclopedia De Proprietatibus Rerum of Bartholomew Glanville from a printer in Cologne now identified as Johann Feldner. Caxton's name does not appear anywhere in the book and his connection with it was recorded only by winking de word when he came to print the same work in English 25 years later. But we can be sure that Caxton's main function in this enterprise was to pay for the paper. If he actually learned the, quote, art of printing, unquote, at the same time, that was incidental. But again, if the press required large investment, the profits were large. Cardinal Bussi, the pioneer or patron saint of publishers, uh, in his admirable promotion copy for the first printers in Rome, Sveinheim and Panartz, said in 1468 that printing had cut the price of books by 80%. He may have exaggerated, but there was clearly a big margin for those who could advance capital for the paper. The expansion of the paper trade in the second half of the 15th century has yet to be documented, though it's being documented now, but the fact is there to see. It paved the way for the real breakthrough in mass production in the 16th century. We cannot explore here all the consequences of this revolution. The Reformation and the triumph of the vernacular languages over Latin were the most substantial of them. The effect on the book itself was again a process of the survival of the fittest. Book sizes gradually shrank from the heavy folio to the handy octavo. Useful conventions like page numbering made innovations such as the alphabetical index possible. The many extra letters that simplified the scribe's task but slowed down both reader and compositor disappeared. Typography, too, was simplified. Conventions grew up for the treatment of the different elements of the book, which produced the standardized title page, the list of contents, the chapter opening. Types also were simplified and improved. The many different forms, all reproducing different hands, were reduced to a few, and of these, the Roman letter, with its sloped relative, italic, finally became dominant. This was partly due to circumstance. The great Venetian printer Aldus had a type designer of genius in Francesco Griffo, whose types were adopted as the mark of the French Renaissance. The French printers, most of them Protestant in sympathy, transferred it to the cause of religious reform, and the Reformation spread it all over Europe. But the final victory of Roman type was ultimately due to a factor that we have noticed before, the backward look. If Gothic type lost, and it is not quite dead yet in Germany, it was because, in part at least, it was the newest. Roman type was the oldest form of the alphabet. It may also have been the clearest or the most beautiful, but neither of these hallowed it so much as its antiquity. The codex in printed form did not change again for another 400 years. The old heavy bindings fit for heavy vellum became lighter as books became lighter and smaller. But the next change came with the Industrial Revolution. 
again, history repeated itself with remarkable fidelity. Paper became cheaper and more abundant with the invention of the Faudrinier paper machine. The press was mechanized and became a rotary process. Metallurgy and mechanics changed the material form in which books were printed. The old process of setting type by hand was superseded, first by the invention of the stereotype plate, and then, after many experiments, by the first successful composing machines, the linotype and the monotype. Both were dependent on multiple matrices struck from automatically engraved punches. Once again, the image of letters had to be adapted to a new process. Once again, the manufacturers sought security in the past, faithfully copying the multifarious and polymorphic designs popular at the end of the 19th century. The first half of the 20th century duplicated the first half of the 16th, a process of standardization and uniformity a survival of the fittest winnowed the superfluity of type designs and book formats. But this revolution is distinguished from its two predecessors by the presence of two new elements which may, this time, really alter the unchanging shape of the book. Those two elements are photography and the computer. Both of them have had a direct influence on the construction of books. The linking of photography with the new printing process of lithography was a far more far-reaching innovation than was at first realized. Lithography is planographic. That is, the image is transferred from a perfectly flat plate by a process dependent on the mutual repulsion of oil and water onto the paper. Gone, then, are the restrictions of the relief print from a three-dimensional metal page. Words can now be arranged in any relation to each other anywhere on the page. Again, photography, now transmitted through the cathode ray tube, the essential part of television, has also invaded the business of composition. Letters can now be set directly onto film at great speed in any size or thickness with entirely flexible spacing between letters or lines. It is at this point that computers come into it. The iterative nature of composition, particularly when as with a newspaper or timetable, much of the material may have to be repeated without change, offered immediate possibilities for the computer. But the compilation of complicated texts, or databases as they were now called, proved unexpectedly hard. The computer technologists, however, advanced into composition itself, finding that an easier task. And soon, the film-setting devices were geared to work a cathode-ray tube beam operating at electronic speed to produce pages of film. It is arguable that this invasion in the 1960s actually slowed down the development of film-setting, which did not require electronic speed 
so much as better and more flexible optics. It was history repeating itself again, just as the invention of printing from metal types constricted the freedom of the scribe. But this is now over, and the computer has established its own function in the manufacturing of books. Round the corner lie further sophistications. Letters created by laser beams, inkjet printing, where the words can be altered with each impression, all controlled by electronic systems. It is clear that the bonds which have given the book its constant appearance for over 2,000 years are loosened, perhaps breaking. The rectangular image on the rectangular page need no longer be rectangular. Even the page itself could be a different shape if such were found more convenient. Pages can be collated, set beside one another with much greater flexibility. The giant Cameron belt press will print and bind entire copies of a book several hundred pages long in one operation. More critical than any of these is the threat of paper starvation. There was a famine five or six years ago, and the price of paper went up as far and as fast as gasoline and coffee. But the demand has not been checked. Forests are being used up faster than they can be replaced. In recent years, paper, like papyrus, has been treated as expendable, and consequently, we may note that the quality of the writing or printing has deteriorated just as it did over 2,000 years ago. Soon, paper will achieve rarity value, like parchment in the Dark Ages. The future of the book may lie in the finding of a true substitute for paper, if, that is, it has a future. And this poses a question which cannot be ignored. The chief impact of photography and the computer on the book has been to create not change within the book, but alternative modes of communication to it. The most obvious of these is television, which has been absorbing human time and interest, not wholly to the loss or exclusion of reading. It is an alternative mode of communication, incomparably more vivid and wholly sufficient for some purposes. Its weakness is in reference, or callback, if you like. No system of videotape recording is so flexible as turning back a few pages and finding the fact or collocation of ideas you were looking for there, halfway down a left-hand page, just where you remembered it. Now, this facility can be supplied. Computer abstracting services can already analyze and codify vast tracts of writing very rapidly. A computer file linked to a complete microfilm of a large library would enable you to get at information very much more quickly than by rummaging through a book, maybe several books. A system sufficiently complex could even be devised to answer questions to which you did not previously know if an answer existed at all. Where do geese migrate to in Hungary, you might ask, without knowing if, in fact, Hungarian geese moved around? 
Between television and computer reference systems, what human need for information or diversion exists to be supplied by books in any form? Perhaps the most immediate hope for the future lies in the innate conservatism of the human mind and eye. It is not a very glorious hope, but the long time it has taken to develop the book as it stands, the backward look in that most unobtrusive of all arts, the art of letter design, the unchanged nature of the page as the unit of measurement, so to speak, of information, all these argue for some stability, even in an age where change of all sorts takes place at electronic speed. Then again, the computer is changing its role. The great, all-powerful, all-digesting Big Brother, as big as a house, insulated from frailer humanity in its air-conditioned cell, is fragmenting. Smaller, specialized information banks communicating with each other by mechanical means, tape cassette to floppy disk, a simple conversion software package, are becoming the mode. The writer, the creator of all this, is advancing from typewriter to word processor, delighted to find that he can now insert a footnote here and renumber the rest to the end of the chapter automatically. He is even getting used to reading, adjusting, correcting on the VDU screen instead of on a piece of priceless paper. But what is so different here? The flickering green letters changing and reforming at the command of a travelling raster are arranged in lines. The lines fall below each, each line falls below its predecessor in sequence. What is this but a new form of the codex page, whether taken as a physical object, eight or ten inches by five or six inches, or intellectually as the vehicle for 300 to 1,000 words. It has, either through habit or through some unknown harmony with the mechanics of the human mind, an unsuspected efficiency, not just in providing information, but in stimulating the human imagination. And here, perhaps, is the real hope for the future of the book, without which the ingenious will not invent a man-made substitute for paper or a perfect system of inkjet printing, for without a market, no one will fund the necessary research. It is impossible to provide a system that will answer all the needs of the human mind. It is a thing of wayward and unpredictable impulse. It's equally hard to believe that any resource will give it all the freedoms it needs. So the strongest argument for the book is that you can hold it in your hand, pick it up or put it down, read it consecutively and fast, slowly and with much looking back, half or whole, or even in the wrong order. It lies in your power and it answers the movements of the mind, often banal, 
but sometimes sublime. So fast that the mind is often unconscious of what it has done, how imagination is stirred, an abstract idea felt formed, or a fact assimilated. All these need words to express them, and the medium of words is a book. No concatenation of cathode ray tube and computer is so subtle yet that it can offer the same change of mode, the same reflection of a split second's unconscious thought as a book can. Outward forms may change, though I uh, hope I shall still be able to write in my familiar rectangle and even to set metal type and print on paper and bind the result in a manner to which I have become accustomed by 2,000 years of experience. I may be a conservative old fossil, but if my outward forms change, I strongly suspect that the idea of a book will continue. Thank you.